Luke chapter 16. I want to kick this off by reading just one verse because we're going to go back to this passage and read it here in just a little bit. But look at what it says in Luke chapter 16 and verse 22. It says, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, we looked at this story last week. Last week, we talked about hell. We talked about all the different names of hell. I showed how most of the doctrine that we get about hell comes from Luke chapter 16. But at the same time, we really don't learn anything new about hell in Luke chapter 16 that we don't see in the Old Testament. We see all the elements of hell that we see in Luke 16. We see them in the Old Testament. But what I want to talk about this week is I want to debunk the whole doctrine of Abraham's bosom. All right. Now, I just want to say this. I'm just going to be honest with you right now. okay? because well, I'm going to talk about how stupid this doctrine is and about how unbiblical the Abraham's bosom doctrine is. And if you're not familiar with what it is, it's a teaching that there was basically a good part of hell in the center of the earth. All right. And I'll explain more of that in a little bit. I, I just, but I've got to be honest right now. And I've got to admit, I used to believe in Abraham's bosom. All right. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to get it out there. I'm just going to admit it just in case anybody finds any evidence out there and wants to use it against me. All right. I confessed it first. I used to believe this. All right. So understand if you, if you have believed this, if you believe this, I don't think you're not saved because of it or anything like that, because I was saved and I, I believed it. All right. But I'm embarrassed by it right now. Right? I'm very embarrassed by it, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to show you, um, you know, why, I guess why I believed it. And I'm going to show you where this doctrine really comes from. Okay? And it is, it's a foolish doctrine that paradise or, or Abraham's bosom was this place in the heart of the earth next to hell. And people say that's where Jesus was for the three days that he was at, in the tomb. And so many Baptists have, they have accepted this false doctrine, not realizing the origins of this doctrine. And the truth is it has, it has no basis in scripture. When we actually go to the scriptures that they use, you'll see it is completely baseless when it comes to the scriptures. I believe it's actually something that came from the Catholic church. And I will show you where this came from. And people try to say what we teach about Jesus going to hell is Catholic. I always hear people talking about the Catholic doctrine. You know, you believe like the Catholics that Jesus went to hell. And you know what? I'm getting sick of people saying because the Catholics believe something you can't believe it. All right. Anything the Catholics believe that's right. They stole from us. Okay. The Catholics believe in the virgin birth. Well, so do I. That doesn't make me a Catholic, all right? The Catholics believe in a Trinity. So do I, okay? That doesn't make me a Catholic, all right? Why don't, they, why don't we ever call them Baptists for believing like we do on stuff? We believe this stuff before the Catholic Church was around. They didn't come around to the middle of the fourth century. Our Bible was all written before that. So if they just happen to have something right, it doesn't mean we're Catholics. That is a ridiculous argument. And you know what? No, you said this to me, but anybody who tells you that they are idiots, they are stupid, they are morons. All right. And I'm not going to call you a Catholic if you believe in Abraham's bosom, because I don't want to be as stupid as these ding dongs are that are out there that use that argument. All right. But I'm tempted to because this is a Catholic doctrine. But why do they call us Catholics? OK, the reason they call us Catholics is because of the Apostles Creed. And some of you might be familiar with the Apostles' Creed. If you were ever Catholic, you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed because you chanted it all the time. And it says, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Uh-oh, I believe that too. Uh, it says, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, 
and buried, he descended into hell. That's why they say it's Catholic, because they all chant that. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Here's where they lose me. The Holy Catholic Church, you know, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Now, that's all pretty good, except for that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. All right. But just because they have that in their Apostles Creed doesn't mean that's a Catholic doctrine, because, well, what do they mean? If you ask Baptist, if you say, do you, what do you think about Psalms when it says thou shalt not leave my soul in hell? In Acts chapter two, where it says that's talking about Jesus. Do you believe Jesus went to hell? Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus went to hell. But then they go to the Abraham's bosom doctrine. Well, I believe he actually went to Hades or the grave or the place of the dead. Paradise, you know, and nobody ever says good part of hell. That's how I word it, because that's what they're really saying. And you know what? Back when I believed in Abraham's bosom, I would I'd, I'd put it that way. I was honest enough to say in the good part of hell, because I was like, it says in the Bible I shall not leave my soul in hell. So we have to call it hell. But in my mind, I was like, well, it obviously wasn't a bad part. So I called it the good part of hell back then, even when I believed in it. So I'm embarrassed. But, uh, but anyway, so Baptists, when they say Jesus went to hell, they mean good hell, paradise, place of the dead. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Catholics believe. Because if you look at the modern version of the Apostles' Creed, they made one change in that modern version. And it says, you know, uh, um, it says was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. You all see that? That's exactly what Baptists are teaching when they teach that Jesus went to good hell, you know, versus actual hell. So uh, it doesn't work saying we're the Catholics. What they believe actually lines up with Catholic doctrine. And so the um that modern English version, it proves that Catholics, when they say hell, Jesus ascended to hell, it's the same thing most Baptists are saying. And so let me briefly, though, preach to you the Baptist version of this doctrine of Abraham's bosom, you know, with the scriptures they use. And then we're going to go back and actually look at these scriptures in context and show that it's not what, this, what they're saying. And you say, why are you doing this? Well, one, I want to make sure I give their side of the argument. And two... I enjoy imitating Baptist heretics. So I'm, I'm going camp meeting style on this. And so turning your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 16, verse 22. This is my favorite kind of preaching right here. It says, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And say, I'm not doing enough good uh, dramatic vibrato like they do. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. And now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come 
from thence. You see, in hell, there were two compartments. We've got the bad hell where there's the burning and where the fire, and that's where the rich man was. And then over there, we've got paradise, which was Abraham's bosom where the saved went, where those who were of faith well, I guess we're not even supposed to say that now. Nobody got saved in the Old Testament. It's a new doctrine coming out of Baptist churches now, which I'm going to disprove that in a little bit. But they were over there safe. And when Jesus descended, according to the Ruktard Reference Bible, it says Jesus actually went through hell and into paradise. And so, my friends, we see that it wasn't actually, Jesus didn't actually go and burn in hell. I mean, why would He do that? When He died on the cross, He said, It is finished. And therefore, and so turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. What was he doing? Why did he go down there? Well, those folks that were down there, they were captive. They were there. They had to wait for the blood to be shed before they could go to heaven. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, Wherefore he saith when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Good hell right there is what that's talking about. And he went down there and those folks, they've been waiting down there for so long, seeing hell off in the distance. And one day, one day, all of a sudden they see this bright light and all of a sudden here comes Jesus on their way there. And folks are like, who's this coming? Who is this? He don't look like the rest of the folks. Got there right after the thief who was the last one to come down there. And while he comes down there, Isaiah steps forward and Isaiah says, Hey, this is the one I prophesied about. This is the one that I wrote about. You know, this is the one that all the prophecies were about. And David steps up. This is the one that was writing about and said, That will not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Adam, all of a sudden, the first one, Hey, folks, I've been hiding in here for all these years because I'm the reason that y'all are here right now. But let me tell you something. I recognize this guy. I used to walk with him in the garden. And he is the Lord right there. God's come down here to rescue us and get us all out of here. Amen. And you all are terrible camping people, man. You're supposed to be running around. There we go. Somebody's got some spirit in here, bless God. They down there that was trapped. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Jesus went and He preached to the spirits in prison. It says in verse 19, by which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing when few that is eight souls were saved by water. And then chapter 4, verse 6, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. He went and he preached to the dead. They weren't really saved, folks, in the Old Testament. Nobody got saved in the Old Testament. They couldn't get saved. No blood had been shed. But the good ones, they went to paradise. And Jesus, he came down there after he died on the cross and he preached the gospel to the spirits in prison. And they all got saved. Amen. They all got saved. And then Jesus went and he took a hold of them and he took them out of paradise and took them up to heaven. And that's where we all go now. And that never happened, was able to ever, ever able to happen until the blood had been shed. And I already, I won't even go into the Ezekiel 31. I already debunked the Ezekiel 31 foolishness last week that Sluder tried using. So where does that doctrine come from? Now, let's just admit it. That's a cool story. Alright? That, that's a cool story. And I'm going to tell you right now, one of the things that originally shook my faith 
on that doctrine because I have heard that story many times in all my in, in my life. I've heard preachers tell that something similar. They always go to Isaiah and David. I think it's interesting how they do that. They always, you know, they always start quoting their prophecies, and you know, and I made up the story about Adam. That was just kind of a thing I came up with. But um, one little, let me make another confession. One hobby that I've had for the years, I love reading apocryphal books. Do I think they're credible? Absolutely not. Not at all. But do I think some of them are entertaining? Yes, I do. All right. And for entertainment purposes, I have read many of the apocryphal books. I like reading anything that's pre-flood. I'm fascinated with that time era and whether it's real or not. You know, and don't look at me. Some of y'all read comic books, all right? You know, you, some of you like, you know, Avengers and Marvel and Star Wars. And you know what? At least my stuff's based on reality, all right? So, but at the same time, you know, I don't go preaching this stuff, all right? But one time, I was watching the documentary Banned from the Bible. And they brought up the Gospel of Nicodemus that tells the story of Jesus' descent into hell. Part two of the Gospel of Nicodemus has Jesus' descent into hell. And I went and read that. And it is identical to what I have heard preached my whole life. All the little stories that everybody told that I thought they were just assuming and just you know, supposing you know, this is what could have happened is actually in the Gospel of Nicodemus. You say, well, wouldn't that mean it's probably true then? No, it just means that obviously somebody read it and went and preached it. And so, but they didn't tell anybody where it came from. And other people heard it. And I, if, you go, if you go to most preachers that preach this stuff and you say, you got that from the Gospel of Nicodemus, they're going to look at you and say, you're crazy. I didn't get that from the Gospel of Nicodemus. But they got it from another preacher somewhere who got it from another preacher who got it from the Gospel of Nicodemus. Let me read... Some excerpts of the Gospel of Nicodemus. You're going to love this story. It's a great story, but I'm, I'm sorry, it's not true. So it says right here, it says, And Joseph arose and said to Annas and Caiaphas, Truly and right, of, uh, right do ye marvel, because ye have heard that Jesus hath been seen alive after death, and he hath ascended into heaven. Nevertheless, it is more marvelous that he rose not alone from the dead, but did raise up alive many other dead out of that, their sepulchres, and they have been seen of many in Jerusalem, and now hearken unto me, for we all know the blessed Simeon, the high priest, which received the child Jesus in his hands in the temple, and this Simeon had two sons, brothers in blood, and we, were, uh, we all were at their falling asleep and at their burial. Go therefore and let us look upon their sepulchres, for they are open, because they have risen, and behold, they are in the city of Arimathea, dwelling together in prayer, and indeed men hear them crying out, yet they speak with no man, but are silent as dead men. But come, let us go unto them, and with all honor and gentleness bring them unto us, and if we adjure them, perchance they will tell us concerning the mystery of their rising again. Now, is that credible? Well, of course it is. It says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, one of the perplexing passages in the Bible that we've all asked about. Some of you have asked me about this passage before. I've asked myself about this passage before. It says in Matthew 27, 51, And behold, the veil of the temple is rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Well, now we know that story is true. That lines up with that passage in the Bible right there. Well, you know, what is, you know, we've always like, what does that passage mean? Well, here it tells us. 
And it's completely incredible. We've got Caiaphas there mentioned there. We've got Annas mentioned there. They, they're mentioned in the Bible. We also have a mention in Simeon, the one who knew that Jesus was the Messiah, that God had told him he was not going to see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. These are his two brothers. And here they are going to the city, just like the Bible says, and they're going to tell them what happened. What's going on? And basically what this is, they are telling Nicodemus and many what happened during those three days that Jesus was in the heart of the earth that we've always wondered about and always supposed about. Let's keep reading some of this stuff. It says, when they heard these things, they all rejoiced. And Annas and Caiaphas, Nicodemus and Joseph and Gamaliel went out and found them not in their sepulcher, but they went to them in the city of Arimathea and found them there kneeling on their knees and giving themselves unto prayer. And they kissed them. And with all reverence in the fear of God, they brought them to Jerusalem into the synagogue and they shut the doors and took the law of the Lord and put it into their hands and adjured them by the God Adonai and by the God of Israel, which spake unto our fathers by the prophet saying, believe you, it was Jesus which raised you from the dead. Tell us how you have arisen from the dead. And when Carinus and Lucius heard this adjuration, they trembled in their body and groaned, being troubled in heart and looked up together into heaven. And they made the seal of the cross with their fingers upon their tongues and forthwith spake both of them. Does that sound familiar? Alright, where, where does the seal of the cross come from? Who's done that? Alright, that gives you any idea where this gospel of Nicodemus comes from. I'm going to show you where the gospel of Nicodemus comes from. It says, Give each of us a volume of paper and let us write that which we have seen and heard and they gave unto them. And each of them sat down and wrote, saying, O Lord Jesus Christ, the life and resurrection of the dead, um, suffer us to speak of the mysteries of thy majesty, which thou didst perform after thy death upon the cross, inasmuch as we have been adjured by thy name, for thou didst command us thy service to tell no man the secrets of thy divine majesty, which thou wroughtest in hell. Now, when we were set together with all our fathers in the deep and the obscurity of darkness, on a sudden there came a golden heat of the sun and a purple royal light shining upon us. And immediately the father of the whole race of men together with all the patriarchs and prophets rejoiced, saying, this light is the beginning of everlasting light, which did promise to send unto us his co-eternal light. And guess who cries out? And Isaiah cried out and said, this is the light of the Father, even the Son of God. According as I prophesied, when I lived upon the earth, the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephilim, beyond Jordan of Galilee of the Gentiles, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them did the light shine. And now hath it come and shone upon us that sit in death. Isn't that exactly like these stories that people tell all the time? I mean, I just heard Sluter do the same thing. He's getting, he's telling the same story and he mentions Isaiah and he mentions David and he just gets all excited and starts kicking and, you know, going all can't eat and stuff. That's exactly what we read in the Gospel of Nicodemus. We don't read that in the Bible. We see it in the Gospel of Nicodemus. It says, and as we all rejoiced in the light which shined upon us, there came unto us our father Simeon, and he rejoiced, said unto us, Glorify ye the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for I received him in my hands in the temple when he was born, uh, born a child. And being moved with the Holy Ghost, I made confession and said unto him, Now mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles. And he goes on with his prophecy. And it says, And after that there came one, as it were, a dweller in the wilderness, and he was inquired by all, Who art thou? And he answered and said, I am John. And it's John the Baptist. He starts talking off. And hey, he's the one that I told every about. 
uh, told everyone about. It says, then when their father Adam, that was first created, heard this, even that Jesus was baptized in Jordan, he cried out to Seth, his son, saying, Declare unto thy sons the patriarchs and the prophets all that thou didst hear from Michael the archangel. Watch this. When I sent thee unto the gates of paradise, that thou mightest entreat God to send thee his angel to give the oil of the tree of mercy to anoint my body when I was sick. Now, when did that happen? I'll tell you when that happened. That's another one of the apocryphal books I've read. All right. It was either the Apocalypse of Moses or the Book of Jubilees. I can't remember which one it was. And it tells a story. Adam's old. He's getting sick. He's dying. They're scared of death. They're not used to death at that point. He wants Seth to go back and see if he can get in the Garden of Eden and get this oil from one of the trees that would heal him and help him. And he's like arguing with the angel trying to get in there. It's just crazy stories. All right. Just the, and, you know, like, yeah, but these things sound incredible. You know, look at these characters. We, we know all these characters, right? You know, these, these have got to be, these have got to be real, but it just, uh, and, but that's another, I'm not even going to go into where those books come from, but it's, just, it's, it's Catholic. A lot of it's Catholic junk that they preserve. A lot of it's Jewish junk that they have, you know, that they've kept alive. So you know, we don't have time to read all these things. Let's read, but let's read a little more to show because I'm going to show you some of these passages that I used when I was doing my fate preaching about Abraham's bosom. Because it's like, when you actually study the passage, like, where did they get that? What made them apply that verse to Jesus' three days and three nights that he was in hell? What made them do that? I'm telling you, it was the book of Nicodemus. Look what it says here. It says, And if Satan, the prince, and hell spoke this together, suddenly there came a voice that is of thunder and a spiritual cry, Remove, O princes, your gates. And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. When hell heard that, he said unto Satan the prince, Depart from me and go out of mine abode. If thou be a mighty man of war, fight thou against the King of glory. But what hast thou to do with him? And hell cast forth Satan out of his dwelling. Then said hell unto his wicked ministers, Shut ye hard the gates of brass, and put on them the bars of iron, and withstand stoutly, lest we that hold captivity be taken captive. Y'all see that right there? We who hold captivity be taken captive. Well, what did Jesus do, right? He led captivity captive. He went and he led the captivity out of hell, right? That's what Ephesians is talking about, right? Right? No, no, that's not what it's talking about. And I'll, I'll prove that to you from the Bible. But it lines up perfectly with the Gospel of Nicodemus. Look at this part here. But when all the multitude of saints heard it, they spake with a, loud, with a voice of rebuking unto hell. Open thy gates that the King of glory may come in. And David cried out, saying, Did not I, when I was alive upon earth, foretell unto you? Let them give thanks unto the Lord, even His mercies and His wonders unto the children of men who had broken the gates of brass and smitten the bars of iron asunder. So there's David. All right? It's always Isaiah and David that are mentioned. And in this story, it actually mentions Micah, and I forgot the other one. Uh, there was one that might have been Habakkuk. I can't remember. I can't remember. Uh, there was another one that it mentioned. But it's always Isaiah and David. Those are the ones everybody goes to because those are the more common ones. So when they heard that Isaiah, that of Isaiah, all the saints said unto hell, open thy gates. Now shalt thou be overcome and weak and without strength. And there came a great voice as a thunder saying, remove, O princes, your gates and lift up doors of hell. And the king of glory shall come in. And when hell saw that they so cried out twice, he said, 
as if he knew not who is the king of glory. And David answered hell and said, the words of this cry do I know, for by his spirit I prophesied the same. And now I say unto thee that which I said before, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. And then I'm going to jump down to this part. It says, and the Lord stretched forth his hand and made the sign of the cross over Adam and over all his saints. And he took the right hand of Adam and went up out of hell and all the saints followed him. Then did holy David cry aloud and say, Sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand hath wrought salvation for him, and his holy arm the Lord hath made known his saving help before the face of all nations. He hath revealed his righteousness, and the whole multitude of the saints answered, saying, Such honor have all the saints. Amen and hallelujah. But the Lord, holding the hand of Adam, delivered him unto Michael the archangel, and all the saints followed Michael the archangel. And he brought them all into the the glory and beauty of paradise. And there met with them two men, ancient of days. Now, you need to keep in mind what this says right here, because it's going to come into play with something I show you later to show that this book is wrong in what it's teaching. And it does not line up with the Bible. They saw two men, ancient of days. And when they were asked of the saints, who are ye that have not been dead in hell with us and are set in paradise in the body. Then one of them answering said, I am Enoch, which was translated hither by the word of the Lord. And this is that uh, with me as Elias, the Tetzvite, which was taken up in a chariot of fire. And up to this day, we have not tasted death, but we are received unto the coming of the Antichrist to fight against him with signs and wonders of God and to be slain of him in Jerusalem after three days and a half and be taken again alive in the clouds. So, hey, we're wrong. It's not Moses and Elijah. It's Elijah and Enoch. All right. And proof of that is the gospel of Nicodemus. And then and so uh, so I'll notice this part, too, because this is in all the dispensational songs. A lot of these songs have been coming out. And as Enoch and Elias spake thus with the saints, behold, there came another man of vile habit, bearing upon his shoulders the sign of the cross. For when they all beheld all the saints said to them, who art thou? Now, who is this last guy? Heading down into hell. Well, what all the dispensational song, you know, the thief, they always mention the thief on the cross. You know, the song, by the way of the cross, condemned to die on the cross, and it's going through all these things. Uh, He was guilty, everyone could see. And all those songs, I'm not going to go through the whole song, but they always talk about the thief on the cross. Like he was the last one that got saved in the Old Testament era, you know? And the truth is, you know, everybody, everybody's always been saved the same way. All right. Yeah. He was the last one to get saved before the cross. Jesus finished dying on the cross, but people always use that have this dispensational thinking. They always make a big deal about the thief. But anyway, um, let me read this one part to you. It says for three days only, uh, were allowed unto us who rose from the dead to keep the paths of the Lord in Jerusalem with our kindred, uh, that are living for a testimony of the resurrection of Christ the Lord. And we were baptized in the holy city, a, river, a holy river of Jordan, and received white robes, every one of us. And after three days, when we had kept the Passover of the Lord, all were caught up in the clouds which had risen again with us, and were taken over Jordan, and were no more seen of any man. But unto us it was said that we should remain in the city of Arimathea to continue in prayer. I show all that to show that, you know, well, what happened to all those saints that arose then? You know, did they live normal lives and die again? Did they go up to heaven with Jesus in the 40 days? Well, 
They had three days to go get with their family, do the Passover, all that stuff. And then they just ascended up into heaven, according to the Gospel of Nicodemus. All right? Now, we didn't read the whole thing, but that's a cool story, right? But you know what? Superman's a cool story, too. All right? You know, Batman's a cool story, too. Where does this come from? All right? Is it credible? Well, the Gospel of Nicodemus, also known as the Acts of Pilate, which is translated from the Latin, is an apocryphal book claimed to have been derived from an claimed to have been derived from an original Hebrew work written by Nicodemus, who appears in the Gospel of John as an associate of Jesus. The title Gospel of Nicodemus is medieval in its origin. The dates of its accredited sections are uncertain, but according to the 1907 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia, scholars agree in assigning the resulting work to the middle of the fourth century. Same time the Catholic Church started. Okay, this came from the Catholic Church. All right, this is something that they have preserved. This is something they've held on to. No Christians have ever accepted the Gospel of Nicodemus as, as credible at all. But, and, and no, no Baptist, I've never heard any Baptist claim that the Gospel of Nicodemus is credible at all. I've never heard that. But, Baptists are teaching a false doctrine that lines up identically with what we read in the Gospel of Nicodemus. And you say, well, maybe it's because it's possible. Maybe it's because it's true. You know, what, you, know, what do I, you know, what do I think about these things? Let me tell you what the Gospel of Nicodemus is. It's a cunningly devised fable. That's exactly what it is. It's a cunningly devised fable. People took, well, here's some things we know about. Here's some things we don't know about. And they just filled in the blanks. Okay? It's the same thing we see it in television today. They can't make any new stories. They just keep repackaging old ones. Okay, and I was just talking to somebody how they, they just came out with a new Han Solo movie. Alright? This is the same thing as that new Han Solo movie, alright? They've got the, and, and forgive me for using, you know, carnal things like this, but I'm trying to, you know, get on your level here. <laughs> but here's, here's, here's the, you know, Star Wars episode 4, 5, and 6, they're like canon, alright? You know, they're like, that's like the real thing. What happened before episode four and stars with Han Solo? Nobody knows. So what do they do? Hey, let's make a movie about what happened to Han Solo before episode four. And all we've got, you know, there's certain things that they can do. There's certain things they can't do. Obviously, they can't have him get killed because that would ruin episode four, five and six. You know, this is supposed to fit with that timeline. And they come up with these creative stories where they tie in, you know, things from all the other Star Wars episodes with this new movie that has just been made up. And it's like we think that imagination and storytelling is something that has started in the 20th century. They've been doing this from the beginning of time. We've got people out there saying, have you seen those cave, ancient cave paintings where they got flying saucers on the wall? That proves that there's you know, UFOs. You know, that, you know, they had giants carved on the wall. That proves there were giants in those days. No, it proves they told stories back in those days too. It proves that they had an imagination back in those days too. It proves, you know, this story, it proves that back then people were interested in those stories. People asked some of the same questions and people came along and said, hey, let me tell you this story. All right, let me fill in the blanks for you. You know, and I've got tons of stories like that that I could tell you from these apocryphal books. I'm not going to, and I've never told them in church and I'm not going to tell them in church unless I'm bashing these things. But they do, they're interesting. 
You know, they're interesting. Most of you all didn't know the reason that Esau was so tired and was willing to sell his birthright for just a little bit of soup was because he had just gotten in a big epic battle with Nimrod's men. He went and he snuck up on Nimrod. He cut his head off. He took his garments where there were garments that had been passed on to him by his father that were from Noah, that were actually the garments that God made for Adam and Eve. And Esau took those things and hit him. And when, the, when Nimrod's men saw it, they came and fought him. And he fought all those guys all night and he defeated them. And that's why he was wore out to death. So you know what? You know, that, that's why he was willing to sell his birthright. It wasn't just a normal hunting trip. He had just fought an epic battle. He's like, where does that come from? <laughs> doesn't come from the Bible. All right. But it's a cool story of, you know, that kind of tells us some in-between stuff that is probably just as made up as Han Solo's story. All right. It, you, you cannot, you cannot build doctrine around that stuff. And nobody's doing that with a lot of those, but they are with the Abraham's bosom doctrine. They're built because, and I can, I'm going to prove this because it is not in the Bible. So let's look, let's go ahead and look back at these passages because this is an example. The doctrine of Abraham's bosom, like I preached to you, is an example of a cunningly devised fable. And so notice, you know, so when we read the passage, when it talks about how he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, you know, and hell he left him besides being in torment. Besides, between us and you, there's a great call fixed. That, and it's, it's funny how everybody takes that, and it's not real specific, alright? I've showed you before, and I'm not going to take time to do it again. There are examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where you can see hell from heaven. That we see examples of that in the book of Revelation. We see examples of it in Isaiah chapter 66. I don't understand how it all works, but I'm here today to tell you that you can see heaven from hell and hell from heaven. And you say, oh, well, you know, why, why think it's great too to show the people in hell what they missed? Think about how that must make them feel while they're down there. And it's a good way to let the people in heaven who got saved see what they missed. Hey, this is what you got saved from. And uh, there's, there's many examples of that in the Bible. But turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse... Uh, 19. Let me, let me turn over there. What's it talking about there? So it says in there, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Okay? What does that mean? It, it doesn't mention hell in there. It doesn't mention, it doesn't really get specific. But if we actually read all of 1 Peter, if, it's only five chapters, people, alright? It's, it's not that long. If you read the whole chapter, it's clear that Peter is preaching to Gentiles, okay? And let's look at it. It says in verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered abroad through Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And then verse 10, it says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. What's he talking about? The grace that should come to the Gentiles. This was something the prophets, they prophesied about it, but they didn't completely understand 
understand it, that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. Even the apostles didn't understand it after the resurrection. They stayed in Jerusalem and God had to shake things up and God had to do that work with Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 for them to realize that, hey, this isn't just for Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. Peter was the one that kind of discovered it. Peter was the one that introduced it to the other apostles. And Peter is writing about that grace that came on the Gentiles. Something that was prophesied. Something that was foretold. Chapter, um, uh, lost my spot. <clears throat> or Second Peter. Turn over to Second Peter. Chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Like precious, uh, like precious faith. Like the Jews. He's talking to Gentiles who had received the same thing that the Jews had received. Verse 4, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." So notice how Peter, he kicked off First and Second Peter talking about how, guess what, folks? You all got the Gospel too. You who are a condemned people, you who are a people without hope, the Gospel was preached to you. You have received like precious faith. You were condemned, but you know what? You got out of it. You were saved. You were saved from your sins. And Jesus Christ did that for you. And in 1 Peter, we don't have time to read the whole passage, but when he's talking about the spirits that are in prison, okay? We'll go ahead to chapter 3. Look at this, all right? In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, um, or verse 19, it says, by which also he went and preached in the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto, even baptism doth also now, now, now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached unto them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Alright? What this is talking about here, when it mentions the spirits in prison, mentions those in the days of Noah. Okay? What did God do in the days of Noah? God said, it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. He said, 120 years, I'm going to give him. God said, 120 years. You know what they did? They were sentenced to die in 120 years. God gave them, God gave them 120 years. You know what? You know who those spirits were that were in prison back in those days? It was everyone in the world. It was the whole world. Because think about it. God's going to flood the entire earth. God's going to judge the earth by a flood. So guess what? The only way you're escaping from prison is if you've got a rocket ship or an ark. <laughs> or an ark, which is what God actually ended up having Noah make. 
and the, and the spirits in prison, these were a condemned people. God condemned man to die in the flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Even though mankind was condemned, we see somebody found grace. There was Noah that was saved and his family got in that ark and they were saved from that flood. Same thing with the Gentiles. We were a condemned people. Okay? We were dead spiritually. Ephesians 2, referring to Gentiles, says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespass and sin. You know who that when the gospel was preached to the dead, it was talking about Gentiles. That's what it's talking about in first and second Peter. It's talking about the Gentiles. They were the dead. That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. And they, they were the dead. And then Second Peter chapter two or Ephesians two eleven. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by them which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both one. We receive like precious faith you know, with the Jews and have broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Between who? Between the Gentiles and the Jews. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained ordinances for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached to you which were afar off. Here he calls them afar off. And Peter, it says, those who were dead. He preached to you who were afar off. Uh, and, and, and to them that were nigh. Referring to the Jews. The same gospel got preached to us that got preached to the Jews. Those who were close and those who were all over the world. The Gentiles who were way off, not just geographically, but spiritually. Weren't even looking for righteousness. And they found it. The spirits that were in prison in the Old Testament, in the days of Noah, it was mankind. But you know what? Noah still found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We, as Gentiles, we were a condemned people. We were dead spiritually. But you know what? The gospel was preached to us. And we were the dead that the gospel was preached to. And when we, we were born again, we were made alive. We were, we were quickened according to Ephesians chapter 2. So the, spirit in, the spirits in prison in Noah's day, it's all the people on earth who had been condemned to die. They had been condemned. Just like we put people in prison today, and if they're on death row, they're, they're, they're in that prison until execution can be carried out. Man was left here on this earth until judgment was going to come, and that was going to be a global flood. But thank God somebody was spared from that and it was Noah. Why? Because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah got saved. And we see same thing today. We are a condemned people. We are a cursed people because we have all sinned. But you know what? The gospel was preached to those who were dead and that was us. And we were made alive in Jesus Christ. None of those passages even come close. And we, I, I, you know, we almost need to take time to read all of First and Second Peter and all of Ephesians to get the full context of it. But we don't have time to do that. And these, and these dispensationalists, they never do. They just want to zero in on that verse. They want to zero in that one verse and then just expound on it and add things to it that are not based in Scripture. And so the, he led captivity captive, all right, from Ephesians 4, 8, and 9. What was that? And I've talked about this before, but let me repeat some of it. 
<clears throat> the captivity that he led captive, because nothing in Ephesians gives any indication, it tells no story about Jesus going to the heart of the earth and preaching to people down there in good hell. There's, there's nothing like that. The closest thing to it is it says in verse 9, Now he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. That's what it says right there. He descended first in the lower parts of the earth. Well, yeah, that's exactly what happened. That's what happens when people go to hell. Okay? And that's exactly what happened to Jesus when He tasted of death for us so we would not have to. Okay? We all will die physically if, we're, if the rapture doesn't come in a long time. But we will never taste of death. In other words, we will never experience hell. But Jesus did taste of death for us. And that's what, that's why he went there for those three days. But Ephesians 1.22, so what was the captivity that was led captive? Well, it says Ephesians 1.22, and he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. 2.11, wherefore, uh, we already read that passage about how he broke down the middle wall partition. You know, he abolished that enmity. He got rid of those things for us for no more strangers than foreigners. Chapter 3, verse 5 which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, and it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Those things in the law, they can't separate us from them anymore. Why? Because Jesus conquered those things. Those things that held us captive. Okay, Are we being held captive by hell right now? No, we're not in hell. You know what held us captive? It was the law is what held us captive. We were under the curse of the law. Why? Because we couldn't keep it. We couldn't keep those carnal ordinances. But guess what? Somebody came along and he did. He kept every single bit of it. He conquered it. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He defeated Satan those 40 days that he fasted in the wilderness. He defeated Satan when he went to that cross and he shed his blood and he died of the death of a sinner. When he took our sins upon him, he conquered all those things for us. And Colossians 2.10 says, And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins, there we are being, we're the dead again. You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Why is it talking about the circumcision? That was a part of the law. You were supposed to get that done on your eighth day you were born. Well, what are Gentiles supposed to do? They didn't have that custom. That was another thing that was holding them back, making them without hope. But you know what? He has quickened together, he has quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Okay, When did He do that? He did all that on the cross. When He, did, he conquered those things for us. He defeated the principalities and powers. I didn't read all the stuff to you in the Gospel of Nicodemus about how you know he you know kicked Satan out of hell and he's just I mean conquering all those demons. And how many know the song "The Victor"? You ever heard the song "The Victor"? All right, it is finished. He has done it. Christ conquered death. Jesus Christ has won it. And it goes, it was swallowed into earth's dark womb. Death is triumph. Nobody knows that song. Oh man, it's a great it's a great song if you believe that doctrine. You know, and then you know it's like um you know it's like. 
Yeah, his, it has a line, you know, his plan of battle fooled them all. They led him off to prison to die. But as he entered Hades Hall, he broke those hellish chains with a cry. Just listen to those demons screaming. See him bruise the serpent's head. The prisoners of hell, the Savior's redeeming. All the power of death is dead. You don't know, I can't believe you don't know that song. It's probably good you don't know that song. I never listen to that stuff. Uh, <laughs> never listen to that stuff. I just have a gift for memorizing songs. But it, 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 it's, I mean, that song, it's, it, it, I, I used to love that song until I found out who wrote it and I watched a video of him singing as this hippie freak, uh, you know, Keith Green. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Keith Green, but I think it's from, it looks like he's from the 70s. But um, anyway, it was a conservative group I heard singing it originally, what made me like it. But it lines up perfectly with what we see in the Gospel of Nicodemus. But do we see anywhere in the Bible where Jesus is, you know, kicking the backsides of everybody, you know, down there in hell? No, it was something that he did on this earth. It was something that he did while he was on the cross. He did. He blotted those handwriting ordinances that were against us, nailing it to his cross. He did that on the cross while it looked like he was defeated while he's hanging there on the cross. He was kicking the devil's backside, for lack of a better term. He was defeating those things. He was making a show of them openly. The devil could not get him to sin. He tried those 40 days in the wilderness. He tried. They tried to get him. You know, he had the people tell him, hey, come down off that cross. If they could have got him to do that, then Satan would have won. But you know what? Satan lost. And even when Jesus actually died and he went down to hell, what does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't tell us that, you know, Jesus went, you know, he broke through the gates and did this and he did that. You know, it says God raised him up from the, the dead. He kind of, why? He couldn't be holding of it. You know why? Because he wasn't a sinner. Because he was just. Because he was righteous. And the way he defeated all those things, the way he led captivity captive was in him keeping the law for us. It was in him, you know, abolishing those things for us. So we would not be under that curse. He did all of that while he was on earth, on the cross. He did not do that the three days that he was in hell. What did he do those three days in his hell? He was tasting death for every man. That was part of what he had to do. He actually had to go to the cross and die. Not like we do, where we're absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. No, to taste of death, because for the wages of sin is death. And that's not just us dying and just being in heaven. That's not that bad. The Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But it's a horrible thing when a person dies and goes to hell. And that's what Jesus did for us. All those things in the law that were against us, he did all that on the cross. That's what he meant when he said it is finished. He finished all those things. But like, people are like, no, nope, he didn't go to hell. He said it is finished. Well, you just said he is finished, but then you want to teach all this stuff how he had to go down to hell and he had to break through the gates and take the keys from Satan and do all this, all this stuff and then take everybody back up and stop and meet Elijah and Enoch on the way. And oh, I mean, I thought you said it is finished. You know, it just, you know, it just taking that out of context, making it mean whatever they want it to mean. But the captivity that was captive was all those carnal ordinance, carnal ordinances that stood in our way. It was the things in the law that separated us from the people of God. Those things were conquered by Christ <clears throat> and they cannot be used against us. And so why? So you say, well, what's the big deal about this doctrine? You know, I mean, who cares what happened in those three days? Here's why this is a big deal. Because the goofballs and the nut jobs that are teaching this stuff, they use it to prop up dispensationalism and the multiple gospels, multiple ways of salvation. And they say, I mean, just at this latest anti-Anderson conference, they were saying, we've got to clean up our terminology. There were no Old Testament saints. Nobody got saved in the Old Testament. That's what they were saying. These are the people 
Two, these guys that are preaching this junk are the ones that the old IFB is using to try to defeat us and what we teach on end times because they can't handle it. Because they don't, they don't know their Bible. I agree with Bill Grady when he said that about them being, you know, scripturally illiterate, something along those lines. But let me show you just some verses that prove Old Testament saints went to heaven. They say no Old Testament saints went to heaven. Yes, they did. Old Testament saints went to heaven. Let me quickly go through these. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. They could not have been in Hades. They could not have been in Sheol, alright, or the grave. They could not have been in the place of the dead. You know why? Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew 22, 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at His doctrine. Jesus said, I'm not the God of the dead. So, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in the place of the dead... Then they're dead, right? You know, but they're being held there, you know, but no. If you believe you went to hell or Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead, then they were there because they were dead. But God said, I am not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, if they were living, what does that mean? That has to mean they're in heaven. Okay? Living people aren't in the place of the dead. Living people don't live in the grave or Sheol or hell. They don't live in any of those things. Right there, I think that's proof. Enoch and Elijah are proof. You know, forget what the Gospel of Nicodemus says. They weren't in this special place, you know, being held. It says in Genesis 5.24, And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. God took him. If, if I take something of yours and you want to find it, where are you going to find it? You're going to find it with me. Where's God? God's in heaven. God didn't, God didn't, it didn't say he was not, for God put him. You know, it says, no, God took him. God didn't put him somewhere else in some special part. No, he took him. He was in heaven with God. So well, that's not clear enough for me. We'll try this one on for size. Second Kings chapter two, verse one. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Verse 11. And it came to pass when they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and the horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Nobody in the Old Testament went to heaven. Well, except Elijah and Enoch. Well, wait a minute. I thought nobody could go into heaven until the blood had been applied. So why did Elijah get an exception? Because this was clearly before Jesus died on the cross. What's going on? Here's more proof. Well, Elijah and Enoch, they're special. They're separate. They probably got a special place in heaven. Well, you know what? Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 shows there's somebody else who is also in heaven. From the Old Testament. It says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. How did Moses get out of good hell? Jesus hadn't gone down there and, you know, had his great battle scene and conquered everybody yet. How did he get Moses out of hell? Moses did die. And God went and buried him somewhere. Moses died. And Moses is seen with Elijah who had been taken up to heaven. So guess what? Moses was in heaven before the blood had been shed at Calvary. Right there. Psalms 116. 
verse 13, it says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And I will call upon the name of the Lord. Interesting. And I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Sluter said that we need to clean up our terminology and stop saying Old Testament saints. Well, I'm sorry. In the Old Testament, it says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Who was He talking about if there weren't any Old Testament saints? There's clearly Old Testament saints. It said right there. And it says precious in the sight of the Lord. Well, if they went down to good hell, if they're down, if they're down there, not with God, then why is that precious? You know, it's not precious. You know why it was precious in the sight of the Lord? Because when they die, they are with Him in heaven. That's why it's precious. Okay, It's not precious for us when somebody dies because we're now separated from them. It's not precious. But it is to God because He is now with Him. They are with Him in heaven. And so it is a precious thing in that case. If they went somewhere else where God was not at, where Jesus had not gone to yet, then why would it be precious? That makes no sense at all. Old Testament saints is correct. The Bible says in the Old Testament, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Psalms 23, verse 6. David is speaking. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, that, he's talking about the temple. No, actually, David wasn't even allowed to build the temple. David wanted to build a house of the Lord and God wouldn't let him. But yet David, after he died, he said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's talking about heaven. And he said, that's, that's going to follow him. All right. This isn't something way out there in the future. This is something David was talking about. Something that was, that was coming for him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy step, they comfort me. This was something he was looking forward to. Something that he knew was coming, that he knew was coming next. So, you know, how were people able to get into heaven when Jesus' blood hadn't been shed yet? Well, first of all, there's no place in the Bible that said nobody could get into heaven until Jesus had died on the cross and shed his blood. There's no place in the Bible that says that. Dispensationalism teaches that. And just because the word dispensation is in the Bible doesn't mean the doctrine of dispensationalism is true. They don't even know what the term dispensation means. Okay? Revelation 13.8 says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All right. And I'm not even going to go into Sluter's messed up explanation on it. He said he wasn't slain from the foundation of the world. And then he got up and wrote the verse down on, on, on a whiteboard. You know, it, that's exactly what it says. But then he went to Hebrews and he read a verse about, you know, how he would have had to have died every day or something like that. And that, this ver- that verse in Hebrews where it talks about he had to suffer every day or whatever from the foundation of the earth, that just means he didn't have to die every day. It was a one-time thing. Okay? For sins to be cleansed and taken care of, Jesus had to die one time and that covered everything, all time, from the foundation of the world. One time. It had to be done. So, but yeah, but it wasn't done until 2,000 years ago. What about the 4,000 years before that? Well, let me help you all. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. I wish people would look at this verse. I wish they'd learn this verse. I wish they'd memorize this verse. Look what it says here. It says, It is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. When This is, quote, this is from Genesis. God told Abraham, before he had any children, he said, I have made you a father of many nations. 
Abraham wasn't even a father at that time. What's God talking about? Abraham wasn't even a father, and God said, I've made you a father of many nations. That doesn't even make sense. So, all right, Lord, where's all my kids? All right, what's going on here? He said, look, so he, I've made you a father of many nations before him, whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, why would God do that? Why would God tell Abraham, I've made you a father of many nations, and Abraham... You know, well, Lord, I don't have any kids yet. You know, what if I die before I have any kids? You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? Hey, if God says something is going to happen, it's as good as happened. Do you all, do you all get that? He speaks of things that be not as though they were. Why? Because God declares the end from the beginning. And let me tell you something, the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a Savior, it was made way back in the Garden of Eden when He said the seed of a woman will bruise the head of Satan. And you know what? When God said it was going to happen, it had as good as happened. And you know what? God didn't have to say, you know what, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Adam, I know you got saved, but I got to hold you down there in good hell just in case I don't come through on my promise. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to not come through in a promise. When God makes a promise that something's going to happen, it's as good as happened. That's why we are saved right now. You don't look like you're saved. We don't always act like we're saved. We still have sinful flesh. But you know what? When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, Thou shalt be saved. Well, does that mean in the future or right now? Well, it means the same thing. It means both. He's called us saved even though... We're still sinful. Why? Because for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we don't need to say, well, I'm going to be saved when the rapture comes. No, I'm saved now. Just like Abraham was a father of many nations then, even though he didn't have any kids yet. Why? Because he had the promise. And as long as there was a promise of a Messiah, as long as there was a promise of a lamb that was going to be slain to pay for the sins of the world, it was as good as done. God didn't have to put him in a holding place, just hold him there just in case God didn't come through. That is a foolish argument. That is a foolish teaching. If God says something's going to happen, it is as good as done. And let me tell you something. This doctrine of Abraham's bosom, it is nothing more than a fairy tale that was stolen from the Catholic Church that the dispensationalists have taken to try to help them prop up their multiple gospel, multiple way of salvation agenda. But salvation has always been the same. It has always been by grace, through faith. It, everyone who's ever been saved, they were saved by the work of Jesus Christ that He did on the cross. What did they have to do to get that gift? They had to believe. They had to believe God. And if it was before the cross, they just had to believe that one was going to come. The Messiah was going to come. For us, we just have to believe that the Messiah did come. We're, believe, we're, we're all trusting in the same thing. We're all trusting in what, as long as we trust in what has been revealed to us from the Scriptures in our time. In the Old Testament, the name of Jesus had not been revealed yet. But as long as they believed in a coming Messiah, then you know what? They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, the name of Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. So it would be foolish for us to say, well, I believe in the Messiah, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. That doesn't even make sense. 
No, that has been revealed. We have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they didn't know the name. Salvation has always been the same. The doctrine of Abraham's bosom it is nothing more than a fairy tale from the Catholic Church, from the Gospel of Nicodemus. And it is a, and that, the Gospel of Nicodemus, it is a fraud. It is a phony. And it is, you might as well go read a comic book and find out what happened to Batman in his younger years. You know, you'll get just as much doctrine, good doctrine out of it. And so, I hope that was a help to you. So let's pray, dear Lord. We thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for, Lord, that you keep your promises. That if you say something's going to happen, we can mark it down as already happened. That is, and that is why we are saved today. Lord, we don't often act like it. We don't usually look like it. But Lord, we are saved because you said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We will be like you one day. And there is nothing that can change that. We have eternal security based on your promise of salvation you gave us. And we just thank you for that. And in your name we pray. Amen.